0: Oh, welcome to the Theology Pugcast, where we are uh, pug-casting from the bunker yet again. We are all in exile, in quarantine. You know, We, ha- we have a few of us who are actually in, in much better environments they are actually at Middle Earth today. If you can see uh, this uh, recording on Zoom, then you know what I'm talking about. Unfortunately, Tom and I are stuck in uh, this reality, or this world, I should say, and uh, the real reality, our, our, our friends are they're enjoying it. Uh, They're in Middle Earth. But anyway, uh, we're we're glad to have you with us, and we're going to, you know, do the round here to to let you know who we are. So, Glenn, why don't you kick us off?
1: I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow of the Colson Center for Christian Work.
0: Okay, Tom.
2: Um Tom Price, systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, teaching both at Gordon Conwell University. I mean, sorry. It's actually it's moving that direction. Um, yes, Seminary. And I do have a very bland wardrobe behind me. Now I can't promise what's behind it, but that's right. why I'm not being punished and put in a in the in the bad kid's room. So
0: <laughs> right, right. And I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm the senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church in Manchester, Connecticut, and I've written a few things. Well, we're really pleased today to have a special guest, Matthew T. Dickerson, who has actually been to my church. And Glenn, you were there when he spoke. He was with us a few years ago, along with Ken Myers from Mars Audio to do a conference on baptizing the imagination. And at that conference, he delivered a talk on The Hobbit, uh, specifically on Bjorn, the, uh, the skin changer, if you remember, uh, who uh, uh, Matthew helped us to see was inspired by uh, Tolkien's uh, knowledge uh, and study of of uh, Beowulf, and it was a fascinating lecture, and, le- and people still remember it very fondly, but we're glad to have you with us, Matthew. Of course, I know where you are. You, you're you in Rohan right now, but... Uh, right, outside uh, of Edoras. <laughs> That's right, but but you're an author of many books. Uh, You've got many interests. I know you're a fly fisherman. I know we got a cat. (laughs) (laughs) I know you're a fly fisherman, Uh, maple sugar farmer too. I think right. Did I get that Um, right?
3: Well, I have I have a property with uh, probably about a thousand maple trees on it, um, or maybe a thousand taps. Maybe six six hundred maple trees. I only tap about thirty of them on a on most years. And that's enough maybe to make oil four to five gallons. But I do lease out several hundred other taps to two local farmers and they pay me in syrup.
0: That's cool. And uh, which I guess, you know, to help people understand what we're talking about here, Matthew lives in Vermont and he's he's on faculty at Middlebury College up there. So I've
3: already said a little bit. Why don't you fill us in on the rest? Uh, Just self-introduction here. Yeah. I am Matthew Dickerson. I live here in Vermont. I have been here more than half my life now. I think I'm ending my 31st year teaching at Middlebury College. And before that, I spent 4 years in graduate school at Cornell University. I studied uh, computer science and also Old English language and literature at Cornell. Wow. Wow. And um, I like to I like to point out that I am uh, in some sense, J.R.R. R. Tolkien's academic grandchild, or one of them. I studied old English language and literature under the late Robert Farrell, <laughs> who had actually studied at Oxford, and, or yeah, he studied at Oxford and um, and knew Tolkien personally. Wow. Um, although he was there, I guess, really after Tolkien retired, so I guess I'm not really an academic grand, <laughs> grandchild. Um, in the first place I ever taught a course on Tolkien was with Robert Farrell, my last year of graduate school at Cornell.
0: Nice, nice. Now, I know you teach some courses there at Middlebury as well. I mean, you're a computer science guy, and you actually have a book on I think artificial intelligence or human consciousness, the mind it's and the really
3: machine. it's really more philosophy of mind and philosophy of computing. It's called The Mind and the Machine: What It Means to Be Human and Why It Matters. So, it's not so much on artificial intelligence, but on the big philosophical question of, is the human mind reducible to a computer?
0: You know, we re- we ought to have you back sometime to talk about that theme, because that's something that we've got into here a little bit. But uh, we're going to have you talk about something that uh, I know you love to talk about, and that's Tolkien and Lewis mm-hmm. and environmentalism and stuff. Uh, so why don't you just take us away?
3: Sure. <clears throat> I can tell you that maybe a little bit of the genesis of, of the books that I wrote, I had been reading and teaching and studying J.R.R. Tolkien for many years at Middlebury College, actually dating back to the late uh, late 1980s when I was a graduate student, and then I started at Middlebury in 1989. And I think 91, I taught my first course on on Tolkien and Lewis at Middlebury. Um, I had written my first book on, on Tolkien called following Gandalf, which looks at some, um, I think, big philosophical and theological questions in Tolkien's writing. And around the same time, I was really beginning to do some reading of, I think, some great environmental literature. I was uh, had been introduced to Wendell Berry and had really fallen in love with Wendell Berry as an essayist and as a novelist and as a poet. I still love Wendell Berry's uh, writing. That's not a past, not in the past tense. <laughs> Um, was also reading some other writers, including Aldo Leopold, um, Scott Sanders, uh, and, and, and many others, and um, I began to see that a lot of what some of these writers who are recognized as environmental writers, who I think are really important figures in in our modern environmental literature and our modern environmental thinking and consciousness, the things that they were saying were really present in in the writings of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Um, In fact, uh, I had a student at Middlebury College who did her senior thesis on, and I think it started on Wendell Berry and ended up being a thesis on Wendell Berry and C.S. Lewis. She went to Kentucky and interviewed Wendell Berry. He talked about uh, how C.S. Lewis, even though he led a very, very different life than Wendell Berry did, had actually been an important influence on Wendell Berry.
0: Yeah, I'm not surprised, but I had not heard that before.
3: Yeah, so um, I my sort of first thoughts were, were more just from the literature, seeing the places where these ideas were um, could be seen in the stories, but then I began to just look more deeply. Is it, am I reading into their works too much? Is it just my imagination seeing these environmental ideas? And then you begin to go read, say, some of their letters or some of their essays or some of their lesser-known works. And you realize, for example, in 1930, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. R. Tolkien were having a conversation about the importance of eating locally huh. um, and the importance of having a, a strong sense of connectedness to the land. About the dangers of an industrialized uh, diet and an industrialized agricultural system. Uh, in nineteen mid 1950s Tolkien was using the phrase "militarized" in industrialized agriculture.
0: Yeah, yeah. In
3: a letter. Yeah. So I I think they were in partly responding maybe uh, in a sort of um, romantic sense to what they saw as the early 20th century devastation of the English lands, landscape of the beloved villages that they had both been familiar with where Tolkien lived in his youth and where C.S. Lewis loved to do his walking trips. But it was really much deeper than just a, a romantic uh, emotional response because they were both just very deep, thoughtful, articulate thinkers and writers. and. They their response was more than just oh emotionally I don't like smokestacks in my favorite town but they were connecting the importance of care for creation with deep theological ideas around um, around C.S. Lewis's 30th birthday when he became a Christian when uh, and partly through his friendship with J.R.R. Tolkien his thinking really began to shift dramatically I think in the uh, In his late teens, he had become an ardent rationalist and was also something of a Platonist. And you could see in his pre-Christian letters, he devalued nature. Mm. He devalued the physical world, thought that beauty only existed in ideas and abstractions. And then by his early 30s, you see Lewis, who again, to the end of his life, would in some way remain a Platonist, right? We remember that from the Chronicles of Narnia when he says it's... You know, his professor right. says it's all in Plato. Um, right, right. And yet he's, you know, I see a, uh, a letter from him in his early 30s saying something to the effect that um, I, be- I think Plato thought that, that, that concrete or physical grass was evil. And I have no doubt that Plato was wrong.
0: <laughs> yeah, right.
3: The right. C.S. Lewis's conversion to Christianity brought about it a tremendous shift in his thinking to see the physical world the created world as valuable and good and something that we needed to to care for so that was i guess the, the genesis of it for me
0: yeah so I you've thinking. written you've actually written a couple of books uh one on tolkien's ecological vision and another on lewis's now yes. i think many people <clears throat> already have a kind of sense Even if they're not very attentive readers, that Tolkien loved the natural world. I mean, it's just evident in his writing. You got Ents, you got Tom Bombadil, you got all that stuff to work with. But Lewis, uh, I don't know if people are quite as uh, uh, aware of Lewis's ecological concerns. And you wrote a book about both of them. Can can you tell us what those two books are?
3: Sure. The first one I wrote, I co-wrote with my friend um, Jonathan Evans who is an English professor and a medievalist at the University of Georgia in Athens. And the title of that book is Ents, Elves, and Eriador, The Environmental Vision of J.R.R. Tolkien. Excuse me, and two years later, I wrote another book, co-wrote with my friend, another friend, David O'Hara, on Lewis's Environmental Vision. That one's titled uh, Narnia in the Fields of Arbol, Hmm. The Environmental Vision of C.S. Lewis. Uh, and that I wrote, co-wrote with David, David O'Hara, who teaches at August Santa College in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. He teaches philosophy, but also in a Department of Philosophy, I think, philosophy, classics, and religion. So he teaches some Greek as well and some classics. Uh, the, I think one of the things that strikes me most in my careful reading of Tolkien on this issue is he had a very, very well-developed um, agrarian vision. I think probably one of the places that comes clearest is when you look at what causes or what causes the downfall or the near downfall of the Shire in the scouring of the Shire at the end of the Lord of the Rings. It it was unquestionably portrayed by Tolkien as a shift from an agrarian society where farms remain largely unchanged uh, for generations, where people weren't greedy, where one farmer would only own as much land as, they could, as they could know and love and care for and be intimately acquainted with, um, and where most of the food that was grown was eaten locally, so that the people who had uh, a long term care, a long term stake in, in the care of the land, were also the same people who were growing the food and the same people who were eating the food. And then the shift you see becomes when um, Bilbo's, or Frodo's cousin, Lothville Sackville Baggins, begins to buy up farms and begins to own a lot more than he can know or care for. And he uses his money to begin to exploit and oppress and shifts it from um, you know, smaller farms to big industrial farms where the food is being shipped off you, someplace you else. Us-
0: you brought up something there. I think it's worth exploring a little bit, Matthew, and that's the idea of uh, knowing what you own. In in other words, when you you, you just brought up the idea that your possessions can become so great that you lose touch with them. Right. And uh, consequently, you kind of abstract yourself uh, and distance yourself necessarily from any particular part and everything kind of becomes a, well, kind of platonic, you could say.
3: That's right.
0: <laughs> can you, can you sure. explore that
3: a little bit? Um, yeah, I mean, I think you've, you've hit on, on the right ideas. Instead of particular trees, particular corn, uh, fields of strawberries or, or corn or whatever it is that you're growing that you know and you love, the particulars of a river where you know the bend of the river and you know what grows there, it becomes a, a product. It becomes a commodity. An abstraction. We no longer talk about a tree, but we talk about, um, you know, uh, core board feet of timber or something that are being exported. Um, and so, again, everything begins, begins to be reducible to an economic or, or commercial value rather than seeing something as valuable in and of itself. And again, this is where I would get back to what I said at the beginning, that it was not merely a romantic response by Tolkien and Lewis, but it was very much, uh, I think grew for both of them out of the idea that we have a, that the universe is not a random, meaningless byproduct of purposeless forces. However, it is that God, whatever process God used to make the universe, it was, um, it was a purposeful process. It was a loving God who loved creation, who made creation good in and of itself. And when we begin to view creation not as a, an accident, then we can see that it's, it's something we should care for. We should ask what the purpose of it is. Why did God create it? Um, How do we recognize this goodness and how do we care for it in a way that honors the creator? I think Tolkien and Lewis were asking those deep, profound, deeply theological questions.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Tom, Tom, or Tom, how about Tom first and then Glenn? So,
2: uh, um, yeah, this is all very fascinating. I think one of the the key points, you know, and this kind of lies in continuity with a lot of the things we talk about on this uh, podcast, but we often talk about, especially in Western theology, this loss of of the significance and dignity and import of creation, yeah. and that even in, especially the Protestant Reformed the worlds, um, the sin character of an impact on creation is such that it almost it it almost gets interpreted as a loss of the goodness of creation and dignity of creation so redemption almost gets read in a in maybe sometimes in gnostic ways or in other in other ways redemption often um looks at creation from a voluntaristic view in which the creation is basically something that we can um, use for higher ends and purposes Um, And so the the loss of the goodness of creation, and even though creation always has its goodness as it's anchored in the gift character, its being from God, um, we oftentimes underplay and often undermine, even in our theology, that grand theological vision that that never gets erased in in, in solid Christianity and Scripture. It's actually the salvaging of creation, its redemption, its restoration, the new creation, the fulfillment of creation, consummation, and yet the recognition that this is a gift in which (coughs) the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen, and yet it has its complete dignity as as it orients itself toward the creator in in the very particularities of its creatureliness. And that's a thing thing we hit on. And so creatures can be viewed in non-utilitarian ways in a true Christian vision. They can, the the beauty of of the created good can manifest itself in ways with a proper theological vision that doesn't undermine sin and the need of redemption, but actually makes sense of it. And I think mm-hmm. this is what they, they had a grasp of. And they retrieved through, you know, what you've talked about, about in other places. I wasn't there, baptized imagination. Because here is a theological imagination looking at creation from this full theological vision. And they're actually retrieving aspects of what good, solid theology was always about um, that I think got eclipsed in a lot of of. of western thought as it kind of
3: kind of moved away from that full vision yeah i mean i think um peter kraft does a good job in in a lot of his writings particularly his writings about tolkien addressing um i think where this sort of new new sort of gnosticism comes from and a lot of it i think traces back to some i would say negative elements of enlightenment rationalism And this dichotomy, again, a new form of dualism, Mm -hmm. where the the world of ideas is seen as good and true. I mean, even the whole notion of um, Cartesian coordinates, right? We see Descartes' XY coordinate system um, as this wonderful mathematical development. But I think for him, it was a philosophical idea of being able to distinguish between sort of the physical world and the rational Hmm. the rational world. And so Peter Crave talks about how in a sort of uh, rationalist Cartesian dualism, um, the world is just seen as dead and the world is seen as a machine. And when you begin to view the world as a machine, then you begin to view it as something where you can just take it apart and and tinker with the individual parts. And and that is you, to use the phrase that you just Used uh, that ignores its creatureliness. Mm. It ignores its telos. Yeah,
2: um,
3: and it ignores God's plan. And I think the other thing you brought up again, which I think is so important, and and this, you know, we could have we can have a, a multiple hour long conversation about mm-hmm. theology starting in Genesis one and <laughs> Genesis two, all the way up through Revelation. Um, but the one that popped to mind, of course, was the Romans eight passage where Paul writes about all of creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And in that passage, he talks about not the world creation being sinful, but humans being sinful. And because of the sinfulness of humans, all of creation suffers. But Paul also makes it really clear that all of the God's redemptive plan is not merely for his human image bearers, but God's redemptive plan is for all of, creation. So if you think that this gives you insight into God's purpose and and God's kingdom, and right, we I think I we hopefully maybe recognize God's kingdom is not a place, but Mm -hmm. the reality of God's rule. So when we say God's, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done, we're almost saying the same thing in two different ways. To say your (laughs) kingdom come is really to say that your will be done here. As in heaven. If that's really your desire for God's principles to be at work, and you know that God's purpose is redemption for all of creation, rescuing creation from its slavery to human sinfulness, then that alone should tell us that even as we ought to care for other human beings who suffer the consequences of sin, we also ought to care for God's created good and beautiful world and other creatures who suffer the consequences of human sinfulness. That's, that is God's redemptive plan.
0: You know, I'd like to get into that a little bit more, but I know that Glenn's got it something that he wanted yeah, to Yeah,
3: sorry. <laughs> no, 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 that's, that's quite
1: right. And actually, this is, a, in a lot of ways, a good lead-in uh, to the observation I would want to make, which is that when you look at, you know, certainly, arguably the most obvious ecological thing that you run into in The Lord of the Rings are the ants. And the great story of the ants are the ants and the entwives. Yeah. (laughs) And the entwives represent a creation that has been ordered, has been developed in some sense, but in a proper sense, whereas the ants represent a wilderness. When you look at the Shire, what you are seeing is the world of the entwives. And I think Tolkien hints that there was an antwife nearby, beyond uh, mm-hmm. in the Lord of the Rings. Tolkien's vision, in other words, isn't a vision of a pristine world untouched by human hands. It's a vision of a world where certainly wilderness does exist. right? But that within the Shire it has been tamed, it has been structured, it has been ordered. Um, agriculture is developed. It is a very tidy place. And the problem becomes when you take that process of ordering creation and push it way out of bounds, mm-hmm. um, is what happens in Scouring of the Shire, where they, they turn it into machines and things yeah. like that. Um, I, find, you know, I find that interesting, the, the balance that you see there between mm-hmm. respecting the wilderness and certainly saying that this has its place, this is a good thing, but at the same time, looking at a world in which there is a way of responsible development right i know
0: yeah, that you want to roll with that wilderness theme uh, matthew so go right well,
3: ahead no i actually want to roll with all three because i think it's an important point it, we can connect can I, to, um, let, let,
1: let me toss in one more
3: thing yeah
1: um it's something that has come up a few times in our discussions um is that when you look at the sacraments when you look at the eucharist mm-hmm. the bread isn't grain It is grain that has been worked on by human hands. Right. The wine isn't grapes. It is grapes that has been that have had human input, you know, to to create wine. So there's a kind of sacramental element at work here as well in this idea of a properly ordered and developed, human-developed creation. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: So that's just another in at
3: this point. Um, you know, I think unlike Wendell Berry, who I think certainly confesses a Christian faith and and, and associates um, himself with with the theistic tradition, I, I I have no reason to think that Leopold definitely. Leopold certainly at times critical of Christianity, um, but in other places recognizes his value. One of the things that Leopold points out is he, he sort of has this. Threefold value system. He talks about the things that are in use, like the value of a good farm. You know, Leopold, after working the forestry for the Forestry Service in Arizona, New Mexico, went back to Wisconsin to help a farm to be healthy again. So he didn't go back to turn it all into wilderness. He he went back to to turn it into a like a good, healthy farm. But he talks about things in use, things of minimal or nominal use and things reserved from you, since he, he sees value in, in all of those. He sees value in the well-cared-for farm, cared for in a way that's indefinitely sustainable, as well as the value in the things that, that we have to say, all right, here are some things we are not going to use them. Mm-hmm. And I think there, there's actually a tremendous connection between that and the 104th Psalm, mm-hmm. which is really unique, right, in the sense um, that the, the psalmist um praises god for clearly things that would be important to a shepherd society or things uh praises god for for oil for bread that sustains us um oil that your wine that gladdens the heart um grass for the cattle so praises god for all these things that are useful to us that are part of our care for creation our ordering and structuring of creation but then the psalmist also praises God for um, caring for the wild donkeys, for the beasts of the uh, you know of the mountains, for the you know the colonies up in the mountaintops. Praises God for caring for lions. If you ever think about that from a shepherd, <laughs> praise God for caring for lions or for the leviathan that frolics in the deep. Um, so the psalmist clearly sees sees value that God has has made creation for us. Let's back up a little bit. I think there's I think sometimes a false dichotomy. We can ask the question, we, we can take the view that God made creation to to serve us or to benefit us as a habitation. Mm-hmm. And and I and I think there's truth to that. He God made the world and he made it knowing that we would be here and it would be our habitation. I think it's equally true that God made us for creation. And if you look at Genesis 2 and the early commands to to Adam and Eve, that Hebrew word shamar is used um, to describe the first command that Adam is to to keep and care for the garden. And that's the same word that's used in the Aaronic blessing, the blessing that God tells Aaron to give to the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. Mm. So the way Adam was supposed to take care of God's creation is hand-in-hand hand with the way we would want God to take care of us, which would be right, non-exploitive. So just as what Aldo Leopold would point out in the 20th century, the psalmist is saying something similar, that yes, God has made earth and uh, made it part to be a good habitation for us, given us the responsibility for caring for it and for bringing order to it, to, to, to plant things and to make gardens grow. But also made us for creation, made us for caring for creation. So that however we live here must take into account not only what God how God made it for us, but must take into account how we are made for it. And so I think it almost,
0: to, so, yeah. it almost sounds like the what we have are the ants and the ant wives
3: here. Well, that's it? I think that's where this conversation came from, right? Right, right. The ants yeah, and the ant yeah. wives. And the problem wasn't that one of them was doing something right and the other one doing something wrong. But, you know, the ultimate problem was that they couldn't get, a, they couldn't get along with each other.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah. Cause you know, the answer, the vision. shepherds.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. The answer, the shepherds of the trees. So there you the have the wild. Yeah. The wet wilderness, uh, you know, caring for that. And then the wise kind of the farming. Go ahead.
3: Oh, I'm done.
2: Oh, I, I was going to go a whole different direction. <laughs> okay. my, well, my mom well, always does what we call it. <laughs> That Glenn says is natural to our show. I call unwarranted uh, uh, and often irrational uh, leaps into do- other directions, and I'm usually the first one to introduce. Yeah.
0: Well, before before you do that, Tom, I just want to plant a seed that I'd like to like to grow <laughs> later on in the show, and that's the difference between the sublime and the beautiful, Edmund Burke's distinction, because I think that's also an ant wife ant distinction. But go go so, ahead.
3: So, can I just say something about ants, and then you can jump in? Before sure. you take us in completely different direction. Okay. okay. I don't know that it will. So, so here's, here's how you know, Tolkien, there's so many things that influenced Tolkien profoundly. Um, I think at the core of it, and Tolkien himself said that in many, many letters, that in order to really understand his work, you have to understand his, his faith. He thought of his, even though he tried to remove most explicit representations of religion from The Lord of the Rings. He made clear it was for him a deeply Christian and a deeply Catholic and a deeply theological um, book. So his theology is certainly important. There's big philosophical questions he wrestles with, but his philology, his love of language uh, was also central into what it inspired it. So a lot of his writing was, was wrestling with um, old Norse or old English words and what they meant and what their sources were. And, and um, there's a there's a really interesting word. It's an old Germanic word, and it appears in different languages. In Old um, Norse, the word would be jutan, and it you know it could be uh, translated as as troll or as giant. Um, it's it's not etymologically related to the English word giant. It, so the the jutan is this any similarity in sound is accidental. Mm-hmm. So in Old Norse it's Juton, that word when the English and the Saxons left Denmark and came and began to settle in England and they brought their Norse language with them, um, that word came with them, but a lot of their sounds softened. And so Juton uh, became Aotin or in some forms Ent. <laughs> so it's an old Norse word meaning giant it is Juton. In old English word and and it has both uh, two of the forms that it can appear in as aotin or ent Um, just an example of where it appears in old English literature I think it's either two or three times it appears in the poem Beowulf Um, and this uh, this sword uh, and the helmet I think that Beowulf find in the lair of Grendel's mother one of them is described as entish And one of them is described as the work of Entz. Um, And and there's a third Germanic language that the word appears in. It appears in Old Dutch. Except in Old Dutch, it doesn't mean giant. It means a tree. Hmm. So Tolkien's etymological mind would have gone back hundreds of years before any of these three languages to this Proto-Germanic language. And we've said there must be one word that captured both of these meanings, both the word giant and the meaning giant and the meaning, the botanical meaning of a tree. Hmm. So there must have been some concept that meant both giant and tree, and in one language the meaning giant remained, and the un, in the other language the meaning tree remained. In the first drafts of the Lord of the Rings, when Gandalf um, is missing, he doesn't show up to bring Frodo on the quest, and Frodo's wondering where Gandalf is, and the readers are wondering where Gandalf is, it turns out Tolkien was also wondering where Gandalf was. Tolkien <laughs> didn't know. So like Tolkien's sitting there trying to write a story, and he's like, where's Gandalf? He needs to show up so we can get this quest started. Okay. And in his earlier drafts, the only hint is that he had been taken prisoner by a hostile giant <laughs> named huh. Fanghorn. Oh, wow. Wow. Fanghorn. Wow. <laughs> now you can see that when, when that connection is made from the Old Norse giant or Old English giant, right? Because the giants in, in, in Beowulf are villains. Certainly the giants in old Norse literature, they're the enemies of the gods, the frost giants. But then all of a sudden in Tolkien's story, he brings in the old Dutch version of the word as well. It's no longer a giant, but it's also a giant tree or a botanical creature. And they're suddenly no longer hostile creatures. They're no longer enemies or villains of the good. As soon as it becomes part of the natural created world, this creature takes a very different meaning. And so the story changes. uh, Tolkien's idea changes. No longer was Gandalf being held prisoner by a hostile giant named Fanghorn. Spoiler alert, by the way, if you haven't read The Lord of the Rings yet, (laughs) Gandalf was being held prisoner by an actual wizard named Saruman, who it turns out is the the most modern character in the story yeah. he's a very much an as industrial, a industrialized <laughs> character he talked about order and progress and one of the things he does is tear down all the trees and go to war with with Spangler.
0: yeah he's exactly right so yeah. the,
3: the story changes in in tolkien's view of what is good and what is evil and what's worth preserving yeah. i think is very interesting
0: well, you know, another thing that's interesting about this is that, as a writer of fiction, Matthew, I'm sure you know how things kind of work for authors <coughs> write fiction. I think that sometimes people who don't have an experience writing fiction think that you just sort of lay it all out. Oh yeah, <laughs> right. and then you just sort of like fill in, fill it all in. But there's actually, as you know, a, a kind of a learning process, or and better put, uh, an exploration or discovery process that goes on as you write.
3: Yeah. For the record, uh, when the hobbit showed up at the inn at Bree, and um, they walk in to the inn and they see a strange, weather-beaten man in the corner, who they later come to find out is is Strider. When the hobbits are sitting there wondering who that is, Tolkien had absolutely no idea who that was. When he began writing the Lord of the Rings, he had no plan for a king who would return. There was there was no return of the king because there was no king. Right. And I think it wasn't roughly till Bilbo's poem shows up. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong shall not wither. Deep roots are not reached by frost. Not touched by frost. Is when that poem shows kind of shows up that Tolkien says, "Oh, I know who this is now." And you know, the, whole you know story, the whole story has to change <laughs> at that at that moment.
0: You know. You know what? Um, I think that this should be mandatory for every preacher. In seminary, they have to learn to write stories yeah. because so often the way they handle stories in the Bible is is so ham-fisted and wooden. It's just pitiful. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and it, actually, if I remember right, Strider was originally called Trotter, and he was a hobbit with either wooden
3: shoes or wooden feet. wooden feet. Yes, um, I think, uh, <laughs> and. Uh, the notes, <laughs> right, the notes are there, um, <laughs> and e- it either wooden shoes or wooden feet would have made him very unique as a hobbit. When I was working on, um, my books, one of the things I, I did was go to <laughs> the Marquette University library where they have the original manuscripts for a lot of tokens mm. and they have mm. like 17 different versions of certain, 17 different drafts. Um, mm. you know, they don't have the entire Lord of the Rings in 17 drafts, but they have, Sort of different drafts of different chapters from different periods and was able to sit and look at how various uh, various portions of the dialogue um, Or the narrative changed uh, Over time, but Glenn you had Oh, no, Tom (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I had one a a while back. Oh,
2: well, anyway, it's not so it's not so it's not so far away Um, I think one of the things I mean theologically speaking one of the things that really um, we've put a lot of emphasis here because it grows out of a a kind of shared conviction that they have. And that is the gift character of all things. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that, that um, you could say, they didn't want to be kind of telling the way, like, like a lot of Christian pop Christian culture tends to basically want to baptize something, not the imagination, <laughs> um, just baptizing—you know—something that really, oftentimes, is not imaginative, right. and 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 doesn't recognize sort of it wants to Christianize everything the wrong way. Yeah. Right. And what they understood is, you don't need to Christianize a lot of these goods in the wrong way to be right. Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, what you do is you you recognize creation speaks, and right. and 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 from that the echo that becomes human creatureliness and its response to that, even with the the aspects of redemption fault, and all of that, they're echoed throughout the whole of creation. That's why when the gospel goes into, it's not merely just for those that have been cultivated and shaped by the the story of Exodus, but it's actually the corn king and everyone else. I mean, Lewis got this, the rest of them got this. So the way in which the gospel goes out is addressing an echo That is from the real revelation that does speak in creation, even though it doesn't get received in a redemptive way until it finds its fulfillment, just like Israel's story in the atoning work of Christ. So they didn't need to move in a direction where they were basically just creating an allegory. Um, they could tell the story the way the story is with the dignity of all that it is as a creature. And it didn't lose its metaphysical connectedness to the Christian God. Anyway. I don't and I that.
3: think Lewis is trying to make a similar point, right? When yeah. at the end of Prince Caspian, when Bacchus and Silenus show up. And yeah. I think that kind of the, the recognition is, well, are, is it safe? And I think the answer is, you know, as long as Aslan is here, it is safe. There's actually something good and valuable in what they represent.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the ability to sort of sort that out to sort of, uh, you know, what, what an illustration that I use is, you know, like the venom of a snake in the hands of a, an, an apothecary is able to draw out whatever is sort of, uh, intrinsically good in that venom. Yeah. Um, when I think about, uh, you know, we talked about Plato and Aristotle a while ago, and the fact that Tolkien and 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 Lewis's their their commitment was or their their faith was Christian, and they looked at those sources through the Christian okay. faith, and I and I think you you made a beautiful uh, juxtaposition uh, early on, Matthew, when you noted that. I think that, that too often we we tend to th- sort of sort of you know read just you know read or sort of turn that around and sort of understand it in the wrong way it's not, not as though uh there's a platonic way to be a christian or there's an aristotelian way to be a christian it's a christian way to be an aristotelian or there's a christian you know there's a christian way to be a platonist you know and and that's the thing
3: yeah my um, my my good friend Dave O'Hara, who's actually written um, a number of books with me, including the book on uh, C.S. Lewis's environmentalism, he shared with me years ago a sermon he had written, and um, and it was really eye-opening for me. And it was a sermon on uh, I don't know if it's a sermon; uh, it might have been been an essay, but on Paul's visit to Athens, and um, the idea that Paul could have gone into Athens and viewed the pagan religions that he saw there. And again, and he, you he have to understand that Paul is a devout first Jew and then devout Christian and devout monotheist, devout follower of God, had to have been appalled by the pagan religions. But instead of going in and just uh, attacking all the Athenians as being absolutely horrible people with nothing valuable in them, he spends some time just looking at their culture and studying their art and studying their poetry and and um, and then he sees they're actually very religious people. They actually have uh, you know a, a sto- their own their own stories, their own poets, their own prophets would actually speak truth. that would point to to Christ, and so he builds bridges with them through their own stories rather than burning bridges by saying everything everything you believe, everything you do, everything you think is is awful and horrible. Um, I'm and actually. They, Yeah. Yeah,
0: uh, uh, Go ahead. (laughs) Well, I'm actually preaching that text on Sunday. It's it seems like an odd text to preach uh, on Easter morning, but if you recall, the thing that offends the the people at the uh, at 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 the Areopagus isn't his call to repent. It isn't his uh, his condemnation of idols. The thing that is the problem for them is is resurrection. Yeah. (laughs) and of course if you if you know anything about the epicureans and the stoics you understand what the problem is
3: but but then their own myth system um this central myth for athens the story of the unknown god is a story about a plague that was sweeping down through athens right and um they they send to uh to the oracle to get information, right? How, how do we fight this plague? And the oracle says, well, you've offended a god, but doesn't say which god and doesn't say what to do about it. <laughs> so they send Epimetheus, Epen- right? And he comes to Athens and he helps them solve the problem. And he says, "Send, leave some sheep indoors all night, don't feed them. And in the morning, they're all going to be hungry and send them out in the hillside. And, if, and the natural thing for them to do is to graze. And if the sheep go out in the hillside after not eating all night and they lay down to sleep, then they're doing something unnatural, slaughter that sheep and put up a, a monument to the unknown God. And (laughs) the people of Athens do that and the plague stops. And so you, you can look at this and say, well, what was, what's, what appeased the, what, what turned aside the wrath of the God? It was the sacrifice of an innocent lamb. Hmm. The shed blood of an innocent lamb turned away the, the wrath of the God that we had offended. That's the central myth that, that Paul is referring to in Acts 17. I mean, what a wonderful way to introduce, as you said, the Easter story, the, yeah. the story of Good Friday and the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Like it, It's in a different form to the Athenians, but Paul can just say, look, here, here's what your story has already told you. Now let me give you the true version. Yeah. And I think that was back to Tolkien. I think that's what, what Tolkien was trying to do with the lord of the with the Lord of the Rings, was taking all these Germanic Norse myths that maybe had roots in pagan system but spoke some profound truths, and baptizing them not by putting shallow Christian labels on them, which would have done nothing, yeah. but does the opposite, skips the shallow Christian labels and makes them deeply theological in many ways. One of the ways you're deeply theological, of course, is, recognize the universe as a loving, active creation of a good and loving God that ought to be cared for. Um, not the God cared for, but the creation ought to be cared for. What, yeah, exactly? that's, so what that, that's also
1: what Tolkien said to Lewis, that Christianity yeah. is a true myth. It's really right. the root of it.
2: And, right? and what, he, what they're actually doing is, is something that is a very much an allergy for a lot of philosophical reasons in the West, especially the, I think the reason a lot of people in, in the traditions that I come out of kind of have wrongly read the tradition. Um, and what ends up happening is they, they think that the Christian, meta- any talk of metaphysics is a bad word because it means autonomy. And this is exactly what they're undermining they're taking the Christian metaphysical vision, the ontological vision, what it means to be God and all things in relation to God. And they're exploring that imaginatively and they're doing it in relationship with the conversation of the way in which creation speaks. Yes. And fundamentally Christian, but what they're doing from that is because it is two steps removed from its exegetical grounding, it doesn't mean that it is removed from the exegetical grounding. It's just applying what scripture presents as the full christian vision to something else and yes. and, and in expressing it that way and see this that's why it's fundamentally christian it is taking the christian metaphysical vision but imaginatively interpreting it's almost like a form of exegesis if you will you could say that what they are up to is an is a literary exegesis of the christian metaphysical well i think the bible puts forth
3: i mean i think that is very much what tolkien and lewis were both trying to do i mean um, Tom Shippey, who I think is is the, really the greatest Tolkien scholar. Uh, um, hmm. And he talks about that's what Tolkien was trying to do philologically. Hmm. Tolkien, rather than writing academic, esoteric papers about philology, rather than taking some word, I mean, he wrote some of those. Yeah. But for the most part, rather than taking some word that he had studied and thought about carefully that appears in a few poems and writing an hmm. essay about it, he would tell a story that would bring that meaning to life. Mm. And I think he's right. Doing the same thing as you're saying with these deep theological ideas, mm-hmm. he is bringing them to life, helping us to understand and helping us to understand them in a deep way. Um, even for example, uh, the ambiguity and, and this is an idea actually that, that Tom Shippey brings up the ambiguity of is the ring, An external force that works on you or is it an internal force of temptation Uh, isn't that isn't that ambiguity built right into the lord's mm. prayer lead us not into temptation but deliver us from from the evil or from as it, it could possibly be translated deliver us from the evil one doesn't that recognize that that both that sin is both something that's uh, something to to deliver us from something that works on us something that's that, that there is evil in the world but there's also temptation that's entirely inside of us and not so much ambiguity as it's saying that these are both true.
0: Now, now we've we've kind of stumbled into a pedagogical uh, question, and uh, you brought it up, Matthew. That you know, I I know that there were people who complained that that Tolkien didn't produce enough of those essays that you
3: talked right. about. Sure. <laughs> But, but, Although the and then, ones he produced were absolutely fundamental um, in terms of oh yeah. changing all of like his, his one essay on Beowulf.
0: Yeah, The Monster and the Critics, right? right. Is,
3: is kind of the single most important essay ever written about Beowulf. People disagree with it and people agree with it, but you can't now understand Beowulf apart from dialogue, referencing that, that essay. And his essay on fairy stories was brilliant and important
0: well, we've got three academics here. Yeah. Okay. I, I, <laughs> I, what a I terrible
3: to... thing for our audience. Yeah. <laughs> those I used to dabble so you, in that.
0: You,
2: you, you dabble in the field still. So. <laughs> I dabbled in it for a
0: while. But, but uh, the thing, but I, but I do think this is relevant even for a preacher because I do think that, you know, much of the formation of a preacher occurs in a, in an academic environment. Yeah. And uh, what, what I, you know, sort of wonder about is, you know, this is a fairly recent phenomenon in a, you know, uh, this, this sort of, uh, you know, when we think about, uh, you know, people like, you know, Socrates or, or even the Lord, you know, there was a kind of peripatetic quality to what they did. They, they just walked around and let life kind of bring the issues <laughs> and then they would talk about them. So, but here we have, a uh, an art form storytelling, mm-hmm. Which is more or less dismissed by academia, by academia. Sure. Yeah. And he, and and if you were to ask, you know, people, where did Tolkien make his greatest impact? Was it with the monster and the critics, or was it Absolutely with Lord not. of the Rings? <laughs> That's right.
3: That's right. I mean, if all he'd ever done was, you know, maybe two or three essays, and we would say, as an academic, he did something really important. But if you want to talk about the impact he had, there's no question at all, right? That that the greatest impact he had was in the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit and, and even the Silmarillion, by the way, that's what, you know, that's part of why I am a, a writer of fiction. Um, there's a lot of things I'm, I'm in my own fantasy writing, my own fantasy trilogy. There's a lot of things I hope to accomplish. So I think there's value in just telling a good story. I think there's value in having compelling characters. I remember, Mm, maybe uh, maybe two years ago, um, listening to, a, uh, I think, an NPR podcast with Eugene Peterson. And he talked about the importance of reading stories, and he suggested some authors, and he talked about um, one of the authors he mentioned was Dickens. said, we ought to read Dickens, because Dickens, in the way he portrays characters can help us build an, uh, an imagination and an imaginative sympathy for people. That mm. he helps us understand people and, and, and getting back to this idea of the danger of turning people into abstractions, which is also a central idea to a lot of Eugene Peterson's important writings. Rather than turning people into abstractions, we need to care about people as, as people, as individuals, as real beings and not as categories. Mm. Um, and I think stories can do that. Dickens, Dickens does that really well, Um, brings to life even the most unsympathetic characters, um, makes them sympathetic. Not that you agree with what they do, not that you can take a look at sin and say, oh, that's not sinful. But even when you look at things that are done wrong, you understand the person behind it. You're not just a a category. Um, So one of the things that I think is that I'm trying to do in my fiction is tell a good story, imaginative story, um, bringing people to a fantasy world. But in this different world with different rules and a different landscape, maybe our eyes are open to see things that we don't see in in everyday life. Um, But another thing that I think is really important in the world today is uh, one of the predominant false narratives or false philosophies is the idea that we are all just complex computers. We're all complex Mm -hmm. biochemical machines. And as soon as you say that, you deny that we have any um, freedom, you deny that there's any moral responsibility and you even really deny free will in terms of um, our actions as having consequences because of our choices. So I think that again, if, if if nothing else, I want stories to do that. I want stories to show that our actions have consequences. Um, I want stories that don't try to put forth unrealistic false heroes who do everything right. But I'm also really bothered by the cynicism of so much storytelling today that doesn't accept the idea of, of there being a hero, not someone who's perfect, Mm -hmm. but someone who is morally virtuous and actually can be a model. You know, I want, I would, I want to ask the question, what would Faramir do? That's the question I want to ask regularly. I think Faramir is one of the great heroes of literature and I want to present um, characters like that. There was a point in the first, um, The first book of my three-volume fantasy novel where my publisher had hired an external uh, reviewer, external uh, developer, to read it and make suggestions. And uh, that was one of the big frustrations for me because this uh, external reader that they hired, page after page after page, kept marking my manuscript, make it more like Game of Thrones. Make it more like Game of Thrones. And I eventually just refused. I said, I would rather not have um, my book published than imitate that. If I'm, if I'm going to imitate anything, that's not what I want to imitate. And they kept saying it's, they actually kept saying it's too much, you know, there's too much that you're doing. That's like, that um <laughs> the thing that Tolkien does, which you can't do. They say, she, she said, if Tolkien were writing today, his books wouldn't sell. And so there's some sense in which this reader was correct. I think probably if I had made it more like Game of Thrones, I could have sold more copies. But then I wouldn't have been accomplishing the thing that makes stories worthwhile for me in the first place. Um, uh, So the frustrating thing was instead of of making some of the prose better, which I could have been doing in that first book, I was sitting there in this big, deep philosophical battle with this external reviewer about why I did not want my book to be like the Game of Thrones while well, it, it, it would have undermined everything I was trying to do.
2: So the second, third
3: books of the series are much better because I no longer had to deal with that person and I could focus my efforts on just revising the prose and making the prose better instead of getting in this kind of, oh, I like what happens to my hands when I do that. My hands are <laughs> disappearing. The, into <laughs> instead of butting heads with, the, with this editor, I could just focus on revising it. So I think the second, third books are much are. Stronger writing because I was no longer in this battle of uh, pushing back against someone trying to make the book something that I. Was well, here's an interesting thing thing to I, oh, tries ahead.
1: Ahead. one thing that drives me crazy: <laughs> are editors when they want you to write their book rather than yours. Yes, right. Yeah,
3: help me make mm-hmm. my book better rather than tell me why it's not your book. Right. Well, yeah. I
1: have an interesting question
2: here. Uh, to what extent, and again, I'm not using writing a good story as something other than an end in its own, in its own right, yeah. but I'm just saying that as, as a byproduct of, of pursuing a good story, like Tolkien and Lewis are up to, that it also uh, almost funds something that is on an equivalent level, I'm not talking in terms of drawing out the meaning of a biblical text, but similar to commentary. And the way in which, Com- I'm, I'm talking with Tolkien and Lewis yeah. in particular, I'm not talking in, in general story writing, um, what they were up to with their interests. Mm-hmm. It was academic, it was language, it was their yeah. creativity, their love for stories, all these creaturely things. They were also very aware that they themselves were formed by the Christian vision yeah. as a whole. And so in a sense... This isn't merely merely an illustration of a biblical point, but it is it is some ways an explication of, of certain truth and um and, and this maybe this is it raises a good question I, I think just from out of philosophical tradition itself, is the significant relation between creation, craft, storytelling in in, in one way and and then the transcendentals truth, beauty, and goodness yeah. Um, and, and maybe I'll just leave, it, leave that out there for, as a topic, because I, I do think the way they take both the incarnational vision of Christianity, right. the goodness of creation, not merely as, as only an instrument towards an end, but the beauty being locatable and local, um, but yet having a transcendental ground and, and fulfillment. Um, these things really informed what they did. How much how much should that inform a good storytelling, but also Christian witness? you know, I don't know. Let let me
0: just kind of, let me just kind of jump in here quick and say, we've got to kind of wrap it up. So maybe this would be a good way for you to bring in the 47 (laughs) Matthews, sort of like bring it into a landing.
3: Uh, Okay. So the, the long answer would be, I would sit down and read to you leaf by niggle. Okay. The shorter answer is, the short answer is read leaf by niggle. (laughs) the medium answer is just to jump to the very end of the story so niggle and and this is a short story by tolkien it's a i would say it's an autobiographical fairy tale Mm -hmm. and it's about the value of art it's tolkien's apologia for his life's work and in it um tolkien's main character niggle is a painter and the critique of him from the secular humanist is that painting has no value it has no economic worth that he ought to be investing in writing po- um, posters to help sell things or help, you know, political posters. Mm. Um, and what Niggle is about is he's about painting because he cares about, the, not about abstract ideas, but he cares about painting leaves and making a beautiful tree. At the end of the story, long after Niggle is gone and left the world, um, one of his paintings remains and it's been given primary reality as a gift from the, from the creator. And you find out that um, the creator himself, there's a a three person Trinity, which is a a first voice, a second voice and a doctor. And they represent justice, (laughs) mercy, and healing. So I'll leave it up to you what that, uh, (laughs) that Trinity might represent. Um, But Nigel has gone off into the mountains, which, which is where the shepherd comes from, this heavenly realm. And they're talking about his painting back on earth. And the, it's the second voice that said his painting has become, for some, the best introduction to the mountains. Hmm. Nigel simply set out to make beautiful paintings. He cared about painting leaves because he thought leaves were important. It's almost an accidental byproduct, but that his paintings, his work of art, his creativity becomes the thing that points people to heaven, that points people to the mountains. And I think there's a lot of value to that. I think if you, as a storyteller, if I try to tell a story well, I let who I am, and I I, I hope that I'm deeply formed by Christian thinking, but if I let who I am come out in my story simply because I try to tell a good story and I try to tell it well and I try to have compelling real characters, that I will let the truth come out and point people where it ought to point people rather than me trying to turn it into a sermon. Mm The moment I try to turn a story into a sermon, it will fail as a story.
1: Yeah, probably a story fails
3: though. as a sermon, too. Probably, <laughs> probably fails as well. I don't know. Actually, I think a good story can be a good sermon. But yes, it probably would if, it, if it's forced, if it's a bad story. So did I land? Well, did
0: we, I, we should try, try to wrap it up here. Glenn, you got something
1: you want to say? Yeah. There, uh, I read a book, I think it was by Shippy, who, uh, gosh, decades ago, Who was talking about someone who wrote an essay in which he argued that the triplex munis Christi, the the three offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, are the three main characters in The Lord of the Rings. The prophet is Gandalf, the priest is Frodo, king is Aragorn, of course. And when Tolkien was asked about this, he said something to the effect of, you know, I didn't think of that, but it's what I believe. And what yeah. I believe inevitably comes out yeah. in my writing. So, yeah, why yeah. not? Because he, was so, he had such an allerg- mm-hmm. allergy to allegory that young people were kind of questioning whether this was really an appropriate interpretation. Yeah. But he accepted it yeah. because it was an expression of his underlying philosophy, right. not set up as... Allergy. Not
3: something he forced into the story, but something that came out of who he was.
1: Right. And yeah. that, that's exactly
0: the sort of thing you're talking about here. Yeah. So, Tom, you anything you want to say as we wrap up?
2: Oh, this has just been great for me. I hope you come back very soon. We have a lot, I
3: think, to talk about. Thanks for coming Wait, along. We'll let's see. Let's, <laughs> uh, get my real reality here. Uh,
0: yeah, it, it would be great to have you back, Matthew, particularly to talk about the issue of, uh, of you know that you address in the book, "The Mind and the Machine." i just left Eros. There's that book. Oh uh, yeah, there it is. There it is. Nice. I've read it. It has been years though, and, and uh, it would be great that. To re- the, go back and revisit
3: it, the third the talk- volume of the fantasy novel. Great, right. uh, nice. So, we have a lot we could talk about. I <laughs> I enjoyed talking with all three of you. Thank you very much for. Well, well, thanks uh, for being with me. us.
0: Thanks for having- yeah, coming. It, it's been it been good. ah that I like that background. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm um, worse.
1: yeah, <laughs> I'm we
0: really appreciate uh, the folks who listen to us on a regular basis. We're told by the people who keep track of this kind of stuff that we got about ten thousand listeners. So we all encourage you to go out and buy Matthew's books right now. Go on, right over. now, <laughs> That's right this very second. You have plenty. Of,
2: you have plenty of time to read it. That's Everyone's at right.
0: And, and Matthew has written on a number of topics, fly fishing, music. Uh, we had talked about the issue related to consciousness and the machine. And, of course, things related to, to uh, fantasy and then his own fantasy books. But thanks a lot, Matthew. We really have enjoyed your, uh, your presence with us on the show. And uh, God bless you. And uh, we wish you all the best.
3: Thanks for having me. It was enjoyable to talk to you all.
0: All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.